So today we're going to have a look at the parable of the pounds that's in Luke 19, <coughs> Luke 19 uh, from verse 12 down to 27. But we've read uh, the, the earlier verses there in Luke 19 and we've got the, the call of Zacchaeus and Jesus saying that he, he's called Zacchaeus, he, he calls uh, to, to Zacchaeus and invites himself to be a guest at his house and Zacchaeus repents and he says the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now verse 11, as they heard these things he added, and the Greek implies he added to what he has just been saying, he added and spake a parable. So the, the parable of the, of the pounds is added to and in the direct context of the call of Zacchaeus. And so he had called to, to Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is uh, up there in the sycamore tree. This is Luke 19, verse, verse 5. He calls to, up to Zacchaeus and says, quickly come down and have fellowship with me. And he goes and eats with him. And Zacchaeus responds that he's going to give half of his goods uh, to, to the poor. Now then, Jesus is giving this parable of the pounds in that context, because he says, verse 12, he said, therefore, in this whole context, adding to, verse 11, what he's just been saying to Zacchaeus, a certain, noble, a certain nobleman, that is, someone of high or heavenly birth, that's pretty clearly the Lord Jesus, went into a far country, that's heaven, to receive, receive for himself a kingdom and to return. This is very similar to the language of John, John 14, really, verses 1 and 2, about Jesus going away and coming again. And he says this, of course, because they thought, verse 11, that the kingdom of God was immediately to appear. And he calls his servants and gives them the pounds and tells them to go and trade with them. This calling of the servants, then, is analogous to the calling of Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus responded by responding to the call and giving away what he had to the poor and Jesus says here that he calls his servants and gives them pounds, money and tells them to go and trade with it so you see the, the, the kind of intended uh, connection that he tells people, well Jesus tells people here's your calling, here's your money, go and trade and make more money with it. When he's just called Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus has responded by giving away his money to the poor. So then, to be generous to the poor is, in fact, in the economy of heaven, is actually making money for God. You see the, uh, the way it's all put around the, the other way, that to give your human wealth away is in fact to be trading and making money in, in God's, from God's perspective on the, uh, the heavenly account so then <clears throat> this is different to, to the parable of the talents where they're all given a different number of talents and they have to give their explanation of how they have used their talents here in this parable, although it's very similar, here in this parable they are all given the same. They're all given one pound. So what is it which all believers have received? And I suggest that that must be the calling to Christ, the, the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, the, the hope that, that we have the, of eternity, the fact that the Lord has, has died for us. 
And so we have each been given the same thing. And there's no good thinking, well, I haven't been given as much as she has or he has. We have all been given far more than we might, we might think. We have all been given this same basic gospel of the kingdom. So his citizens hated him, and they sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. So there's a difference between his citizens and his servants. So the citizens, I think, we can interpret as, as the Jewish people, and he says, verse 27, those mine enemies that would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me, um, or really anyone who simply says, I don't want anything to do with this. So there's two categories here, the citizens and the, and the servants. Now, in the, in the parable, he calls the servants to him just before he leaves to go to the far country and he tells them here's your pounds here's the gospel trade or occupy with these until i return now when jesus was about to go to the far country that is ascend to heaven what did he do he called his disciples unto him and he gave them the great commission he said you know here is the gospel go into all the world and teach Preach, baptize, and teach again people, and give them the hope of the kingdom, and spread this all over the world. That was actually the commission that he gave, gave to them. And here I think that is to be connected with him gathering together his servants, this nobleman, this man of high birth, before he goes into the, into the far country, he gathers them together and says, here's your pounds, one each, go and trade with these, occupy with these, until I come. Just as Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, and lo, I am with you unto the end of the age. That is, insofar as you will go into this world with the gospel, in whatever way, I'm not saying that everyone is called to geographically do that, but in whatever way that we go out there into this world with the gospel, we are, in that sense, occupying until he comes. And so, as Jesus said, I am with you in this work until the end of the age. And it seems to me that if we really put our hand to the plough, if we really do go into this world and seek to, to persuade men and women to, to come to Christ and to teach them even after their baptism the, uh, the principles of, uh, uh, of the life in Christ and to do all we can to build them up, then somehow the Lord Jesus is in a very strange way present with us right until the end and he will be with his servants in this work until the end of the age, until, as he puts it here, until I come. Now, this Greek word that's translated there, occupy, or trade, uh, comes from the, the uh, is a form of the Greek word pragma. Be pragmatic. Be pragmatic in your work, that is, with these pounds that I've given you, until I return. Now, that is uh, a comfort, I think, to those of us like myself who, who read the message of, of the Lord Jesus where he tells us to sell all that we have and give to the poor and in all seriousness at times reading some of his teaching you do really think well I should just get rid of all this and go and live in a tent and take wife, kids and everything and just trust in the Lord this seems to be in some places the spirit of, uh, of the gospel and then you think well sell all that I have but I, <laughs> that would ultimately include my tent that I, I was thinking of uh, of living in with Cindy and Avia. 
um, you know, your clothes, all this stuff. No. And then you think, no, no, no. This obviously is not the literal intention of the Lord. We have to be pragmatic. But as soon as we say, oh, you've got to be a little bit pragmatic about things, then, you know, you, there's no end to that. You end up, in its worst uh, term, living just like anyone else does in this world. And yet he does say, pragmatize until I come. That is work, but realistically, with what I have given you, until I come. So it is a challenge to occupy, to work, to labor, to pragmatize until I come. And yet it is also a comfort that he understands that in the work that he's given us to do, there is a, a pragmatic element. If we are seriously going to give it our best shot, that does involve a certain amount of forethought, of planning, etc. So then, <clears throat> this word, uh, pragmatize, or translated here, occupy or trade until I come, it occurs in Romans 16 verse 2. And I'm a great believer that uh, Paul, all the way through his writings, is constantly, every three verses on average, I, I once worked out, is constantly alluding back to the Gospels, particularly to the parables. Now, I, I can't just stop to, to prove that. You can uh, uh, see it all uh, reasoned out in my, my material on, the, on Paul. Uh, but that's my, what I put to you. And so it's not surprising for me to see here in Romans 16 verse 2, Paul alluding back to this parable in that he uses this same word for being pragmatic. He says, verse 1, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant or deaconess of the church, uh, which is at St. Crea, that you receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that you assist her in whatsoever business, and it's the same word, occupying, trading in whatever business she may have need of you for she herself also has been a succorer of many and of myself also so he says help this woman in her pragma help this woman in her occupying, in her trading So, and he, he says that this is uh, in the context of her good works that she's doing, succoring many uh, serving the, the ecclesia etc so then, this parable about the, the pounds, that we are to each go away and occupy with the pound that we've been given, with the gospel that we've been given, until the Lord comes. It, Paul takes that, I think, a stage further, because I think he is cons consciously alluding back here in Romans 16, and he's saying, and assist others to do that. Because each of your brothers and sisters also has the gospel and they are to be ministering and occupying in that making a profit for the Lord until he come and so therefore Paul is saying look uh, this Phoebe, the sister from uh, St. Crea she's doing that, help her to do that and so what does that translate into in, in our terms today? I think it is that when we see our brother or our sister in their own way, doing their own ministry, they've got their thing that they should do, encourage them in it. Even if it's not your thing. You see somebody, for example, I, I might see people who clearly have a, a blessing in, in music. And maybe worship and praise is, is part of what they're called to. Now, I'm totally not really musical. But I should be encouraging that person who's got some talent there, some, some calling there, to, to use that 
for their trading, their occupying until the Lord comes because we want to see not only ourselves as it were making a profit, we want to see all our brothers and sisters also making a profit as it were because it's all to the Lord's glory and to the Lord's wealth. Now, standoffish attitudes to each other, division, not having anything to do with this one or that one or the other, this is not at all how it should be amongst us. We should be a positive and encouraging community that are encouraging all those in the body of Christ, not just in our little sort of subgroup of it, as it were, but encouraging others that we meet in the body of Christ to trade their talent, or trade their pound, as it is here. Now, I suggested that the nobleman gathering his servants just before he goes to the far country, giving them his wealth and saying, look, you, you get on and trade with us until I come back. I suggested that that is to be connected with the Lord Jesus gathering his people to him just before he ascends to heaven and giving them the great commission to go and preach the gospel. Well, I think that that is confirmed by what he says in verse 23 to the the man who just keeps the, the pound and doesn't do anything with it. He says to the man, Why didn't you give my money into the bank? And I, at my coming, should have required mine own with interest. Well, it's very clear that the Jews were not to lend out to other Jews for interest. In fact, in Ezekiel 18, where God lists the, the things that he really felt were worthy of death amongst uh, his people, he several times mentions the man who lends for usury or for interest. Now, they could have lent to Gentiles. It seems to me that that was not forbidden. But to lend to your brother or sister, your, your Jewish brother or sister, was not allowed. And so when Jesus says to this man, look, why didn't you give my money into the bank and got some interest on it? He could be saying, look, you should have taken the pound, the gospel, to the Gentiles. Why didn't you do this? Why did you just do nothing at all with what you've got? So that would again fit in with the idea that the calling of the servants just before he goes to the far country, giving them this great commission uh, to... Um, sort of giving them this charge to trade with his money until he returns, that this is really uh, the equivalent of the Great Commission. Now, in all the parables, there is what I've called an element of unreality. There's something that doesn't quite ring true. This nobleman who's going away, uh, would he normally just give all his money in cash to his servants? Um, it, it seems unlikely. I mean, just gather together a bunch of uh, slaves, household slaves, and say, here's all, here's all, all my money. Um, you just get on with it and uh, trade with it. Go to the market and trade with it. And uh, you see what you can do to, to get more. And when I come again, I'll see how, how well you've done in your trading. It's slightly unusual. I don't think any nobleman in the first century would have done that. And the element of unreality is like a, a signpost, it's like flagging up the point that the Lord is making in the story. The bit that sticks out as unusual is what is his whole point. And I think the point here is that this unusual amount of trust, 
which the nobleman has in his servants, that he had entrusted them with a, in a quite unusual way. This is what God and the Lord Jesus have done to us. Paul talks in his writing about how we have been entrusted with the gospel. And quite literally, Jesus has had faith in us and given us the gospel in order for us to do something with it. Now, of course, from his point of view, this is a very risky thing to do because slaves were not used to having money in their own hand. Like, what if they run away with it? You know, he's not going to be around to sort of chase them and bring them back, but he gives his slaves, his household slaves, he gives them this money in their own hand. It's very odd. And it just shows the, the huge degree to which God has decided to have faith in us. That's why he's so earnest and eager to see how we're getting on with what we're doing. It may seem, because heaven seems to be silent, that you know, we, we go around talking to people, trying to share the gospel, trying to build up those who are baptized, and you know, there's the, the steely silence of the skies. It, it seems that God is silent, indifferent, not watching. But in fact, he is watching intensely because he has entrusted his whole work, in that sense, to us. And in that sense, it will prosper insofar as we make it prosper. Now, that's not teaching you know, glorification of human works or anything like that. Salvation itself is by grace alone. That's quite clear. But when it comes to the, the pragma, this occupy, pragmatize until I come, when it comes to the actual sort of pragma of working out all this kind of stuff here on earth, the, the whole purpose of God here on earth, he has delegated that to us, and he has delegated a huge responsibility to us. And that is why that the man who does nothing is described as a wicked servant. To actually do nothing when you have been entrusted with so much is, is wickedness. So then they were to trade the pound, the, uh, the, the, the minor, the uh, bit of uh, money that they'd been given, to bring forth more profit for God. Now, if we're right in interpreting this, this minor or pound that they're given as the gospel, it seems to me that our thrust in life, therefore, should be to share that gospel with others and seek to persuade others to respond and to bring forth glory to God in that way. Now, this is not the same as simply doing good deeds, feeding the hungry, etc., um, there can be the idea that that is in fact doing God's work. And I'll be honest, I know it's very popular uh, to do that, but I, I'm not so sure that that is in fact the calling that we have. We are to occupy, to trade with what God has given us, which is the gospel, to bring forth more glory to him. And I just mentioned that because the whole burden of our lives, the whole essence of our lives should be doing this, you know, occupying, trading in his service until he comes, spreading his name, his glory until he comes. So then when he does come back, he calls them. And he, he asks how much they had gained by trading. 
and uh, the first one comes and says, Lord, your pound has gained ten pounds more. So he gained, and this word gained, it's used elsewhere about gaining people for Christ. Gaining your brother or sister. Gaining the lost in the ecclesia back to him. This is the work we should be doing. To actually have an influence and an impact upon other people. Now, as I say, this is not simply do-gooding, indiscriminately, you know, dishing out soup to the to the hungry. And you know, believe me, I, I, I've done my I've done my turn in that, and I'm not uh, knocking it at all. I could never knock such a such good works uh, for the sake of it. Um, but what we are called to do is to gain people for the Lord. So. We may say, ah, yeah, I'm not very good at human relationships. Well, actually, nobody is. I used to think I, I was pretty hopeless at it until I, one by one, started to realize everybody else around me was as well, and eventually I, uh, the penny dropped that actually human beings are not good at human relationships. And then another big penny dropped with me that the whole uh, calling that we have is to gain people, either our brothers and sisters in Christ or people in the world to, to gain them for Christ and that is all about human relationships in a sense unfortunately because we're all so bad at it um, but that's what it's about so then this man uh, all of them actually the, the other guy in verse 18 that they give a straight answer straight up like what do you do with the pound yep uh, you gave me a pound and it got ten pounds here you are sir very quick, snappy response. Now, if I said to you, if I say to myself, um, so when we were baptised, we, we, we had the pound of the gospel, we accepted it, and we, we went out to, to trade and occupy until he come. Now, if the Lord came up to you or me and said, okay, so uh, what have you done with it? Uh, right now, give me an explanation. What, what have you done with it? I, I don't really know what I would say. And probably you also don't know. What is there to say? It's rather hard to know ourselves. But I think one of the purposes of the Day of Judgment is so that we can come to understand and know ourselves. So that we will then see ourselves, as it were, from outside ourselves through the whole uh, process of judgment that we will be able to say, yes, I was given that, wasn't I? And yes, this is what I achieved with what you gave me. Now, in this life, I don't think we can say that. We don't have th that ability to be that in touch with ourselves. This raises the whole question of why is there a day of judgment? Why doesn't Jesus just come back and, let's say, he comes back right this minute, and so I am immediately in God's kingdom and I live forever, and that's great. Well, I think it can't be like that, because if that were to happen, I and, and you and I, we, we just simply would, would not appreciate what it was all about. It's like you give anyone a, a big gift or a, a, a wonderful thing that, that's way above their wildest ability to cope with. We don't just give it to them. You sit down and explain what it is, how it works, uh, I'm thinking particularly maybe with the, with children, um, and the idea of this, the purpose of giving it to them, um, uh, and you 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 sort of ease into the whole thing. Not just zap, here's your present. If it's a you know something that's really beyond them really to to cope with, 
And so it is with, with the Day of Judgment. That, I mean, judgment is only a kind of figure. But it's not that God, in that sense, needs to have a, a judgment process to assess us, to gather information and then to weigh it up and make a decision. Because we were saved, in that sense, from the foundation of the world. God knows everything. He doesn't need a, a judgment process to reveal that to him. So therefore, why is there this judgment process? And it is really for our benefit. The whole purpose of the whole thing is for, is for our benefit. So that we will enter eternity. That we will enter the divine nature. Having been appropriately humbled understanding ourselves, where we came from, and how God worked with us. And I think that's also why there's the implication that we will actually view each other's judgment. I mean, for example, uh, in Revelation 16 we're told that the, the rejected will walk naked at the day of judgment, and that we will see their shame. Well, shame is something you have in the context of other people's eyes looking at you. So we will see them in their naked shame, and they will feel our gaze. Jesus says again about the rejected that they will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, and they themselves thrust out. And that again suggests that people will, as it were, see themselves from outside of themselves. That they, you know, he says, you will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. You will see yourselves cast out. So then the idea is that that judgment process enables us to, to, to come to understand ourselves, really. And it is, in that sense, for our benefit. And that's why I think these, these people give pretty snappy answers. Well, here's your pound, and uh, it gained ten pounds more. They know exactly what has, what has happened. Now, there's a lot of emphasis in the proportion anyway, of verses anyway within the parable, on this man who comes with his uh, pound laid up in a napkin uh, but sorry, before we get to that, I, I meant to uh, I, I meant to say that another element of unreality in the story is that we expect the uh, the nobleman to say, well, well done, you, you traded, you, your pound made another £10, that's pretty good. We might expect him to say, well, you know what, you can keep those £10, or you know what, you can keep five of them. But instead he says, and don't forget, he's just come back from receiving a kingdom, he says, you can have authority over ten cities in this new kingdom I, I was given. There's something totally disproportionate that you were faithful, as he put it, verse 17, in a very little, so you can have ten cities. Wait a minute. There's something disproportionate. And I'm sure that when we're in God's kingdom, we shall look back and think, wow, it's like, you know, the, the, the parable of the mustard seed. This tiny little mustard seed turns into this great big tree that all the other birds come and live in its branches. The beginnings that we're having in this life are very, very small. That by, quote, chance, for example, we came across a, a leaflet or an advertisement or a book or something, or we happened to be born into a, a faithful family, and it ended up that we learned about the Lord Jesus and we got baptized, we happened to work with somebody who was a believer, etc., etc. From these tiny beginnings, from these tiny beginnings, we will be led to the, the hugeness 
of eternal life. And not only a life eternal, but having authority over others. The whole thing is, is totally disproportionate. But that is what is going on in this day of small things. Because it's, this is a day of small things that we're living in right now. But there are huge consequences. In that sense, you know, every single second, minute, hour, day, week, month, year that we live has got huge consequences. Because we're being developed for eternity. So that who we are going to eternally be is being decided and formed and shaped right now. It's the importance the vital importance of life and living and how we live our lives, it just can't be underestimated. It's huge and it's vast. It's of eternal consequence. And the seriousness, the, the weight, dare I say, of that, it should be felt by us, not in a burdensome sense, but the, the crucial importance of how we live life every minute on this earth. You know, as cotton wool clouds drift across the sky, we can maybe think that nothing really matters and everything goes on as it always has done and, well, we'll see what happens at the Day of Judgment. But no, what we are doing now in this life is of eternal consequence. It really is. Anyway, this uh, man who has the pound, he keeps it laid up, they kept it, verse 20, laid up, in a napkin, which should have been used apparently for wiping away the sweat uh, from his forehead. But anyway, he didn't do any work with it. But he didn't throw it away, he didn't steal it, he didn't go and spend it on himself. He kept it laid up. And that, in fact, is uh, a similar family of words that are used by Paul in his pastoral letters when he talks about keeping the faith, laying up the good deposit, keeping the faith. And I think that uh, there's an intended connection there. This person doesn't throw it away. He keeps it, but he doesn't do anything with it. And he says in verse 21, I feared you. And in Matthew 25, verse 25, in a very similar parable, he says, I feared and therefore I hid it in the earth I feared and therefore I hid it now this is and I mean the connection is clearer in Matthew 25 25 but this is right out of Genesis 3 verse 10 where Adam is called to God to give an account and what does he say I feared and therefore I hid myself here the man is called to account and he says I feared and therefore I hid the pound. Adam said, I feared and therefore I hid myself. You see, I'm sure the Lord had this connection in mind. And the connection is, therefore, that myself, as Adam said, I hid myself, is the pound. That the gospel that we have been given, this is to be our life. This is not church on Sunday and possibly Wednesday night or whenever it is. This is not church as a social club. This is Christ being your life. Lovely words, and Paul says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we also shall appear in glory. 
So Christ is to be our life. For me, Paul could say, to live is Christ. That this is not about mere religion. This is not about part-time. This is not religion as a hobby. Bible study as a kind of hobby that we take up. The work of the Lord with that pound that he has given every single one of us, this is to be our life. So then, this man is fearful. And he says in verse 21, I feared thee because you're a hard man, you take up what you lay not down, you reap what you didn't sow. Well, let's just try and think through the guy's mentality. He says, I didn't do anything with this, I hid it in the earth, I kept it, laid up, I wrapped it actually, and I did this because I think that you're the sort of person who reaps what they didn't sow. What's the connection then? Why then does he hide it in the earth in Matthew 25? Uh, Why does he just keep it very secretly? Because you reap what you didn't sow. I think the implication is, because you at times demand more, so he thought, uh, than what you've sowed, you take up what you didn't lay down, so he says, well, I thought it was better therefore to do nothing with this in case I lost it. Because trading is a risky business. I mean, these guys who had the pound that made five pounds and the pound that made ten pounds, was every deal they did down the market successful? Sure it wasn't. There must have been times in the course of their trading when they lost. When, as it were, they took two steps backward and then three steps forward. That's the nature of trading with money. And so, you know, it's not to be surprising, not to be un- sort of unexpected, if at times it is two steps backward and three steps forward in our work for the Lord. It's not victory after victory. Not at all, because we are trading in the marketplace. We're in business, as it were. And uh, this guy knew that, and he, it seems to me, putting this together, he thought, well, because I fear this man, I had better not risk anything. Because he's going to expect, he expects something more than the pound. I know he does, but you see, if I lose the pound... then I absolutely don't have anything to give him back at all. And he's a very hard man. Now what a a tragedy that people would think that about the father and his son. But I think the Lord has got his finger on a mentality that is extremely common amongst believers in our community. Those who think that All you've got to do is to hold on to the doctrinal theological understanding of the faith until the Lord comes, and that's all that's required of you. I was in such mindset. When I was baptized, the the brother who baptized me gave me uh, a statement of faith and told me that I should make sure that I hold on to those doctrines until the bitter end, and it would be more difficult for me, he said, than, than I probably imagined at Sweet Sixteen, and that uh, you know, that's really what's required of us. And so people write articles defending all sorts of fine points of interpretation because we are holding on to the faith that was delivered to us 
by our fathers, by our spiritual fathers or literal fathers or, or whoever. And they see that that's, it seems, all that they're called to, and to endlessly criticise others and sound warnings against this false teacher and that one and all the rest of it. And I think the Lord had his finger right on the pulse. The fact that he uses the same words here that Paul is to later use about keeping the faith. I think he's saying, look, the tendency is to, yes, to keep it. To be able to say with confidence, as this fellow seems to come in verse 20 with the, some confidence, uh, saying, well, yeah, Lord, he calls him Lord, uh, here is your pound. And I have kept it. You know, I did not spend it on myself. I actually wrapped it in a napkin. I was very careful about this. And yet the Lord says to him, verse 22, you wicked servant. You can imagine the guy being really shocked. Wicked? Look here, I didn't run off with your money. I actually wrapped it in a, a napkin so that it would not in the slightest bit get tarnished or damaged. And uh, we know from Matthew 25, I, I hid it in the earth, and I give it back to you. And I've been looking forward to this day. And you'd call me a wicked servant. In what was his wickedness? The, wicked doesn't seem almost an appropriate word at first hearing. But I think the point is that inaction, doing nothing with the gospel, is active wickedness. We tend to think that sin is all about commission what I have committed, or what he or she has done. Whereas, actually, sins of omission are just as bad. You remember when Jesus um, was criticized for healing on the Sabbath, and he said, well, what's better, to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? And his idea was, that, well, if I hadn't healed on the Sabbath, because you guys are watching me so critical and wanting to pull me down... And, and watching my every movement, if I had taken notice of you people, I would have actively done evil to put off doing the good that we could do is doing evil. This man then is called a, a, a wicked servant in Matthew 25 verse 26. He's called a wicked and lazy or slothful servant. Again, He's condemned for being lazy, and we all tend to be a bit lazy. It's very natural for us to be like that, slothful, lazy. But you know all the times that the Proverbs condemn sloth or laziness. It's a real big issue in the Proverbs. And here it is as well, because the wicked servant is wicked because he is lazy. But this person would say, I wasn't lazy, I kept it. I kept this pound you gave me and I wrapped it in a napkin and I resisted temptation with an iron will to go and run off and spend it on myself. Now, this I fear, I fear, Now I hope I'm wrong, but I, I fear that this could be the end of so many apparently stalwart, faithful brothers and sisters who honestly believe that their whole duty in life is that they should keep on uh, believing a very detailed set of theology that they were, <clears throat> they were given, they inherited from spiritual or natural fathers, and that that's all they've got to do. Because actually, if you don't let the gospel bring forth its fruit in you, if you don't occupy with it until I come, if you do not take this in your own life into all the world that is around you, 
and get it to bring forth fruit. I, I mean, <laughs> you are wicked. That, that's what the Lord is saying. Now, just remember that there is a distinction in this parable between the servants and the citizens. The citizens say, we don't want anything to do with this. And they will be punished. But this servant, he's one of the servants, and he calls Jesus, verse 20, Lord. Now, this fear is paralytic. It paralyzes people. And, it, you know, I know a lot of people are sort of are fearful of, of God, and I know the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I accept that. But this kind of fear that paralyzes action, in case we get it wrong, we might make a mistake. And so the, the Lord's work is not done. I remember having a discussion with a brother who was criticizing me for, as he perceived it, um, how I baptize people. His beef with me was, how much do these people know of the gospel? And um, <clears throat> in the course of the, of the discussion, I said, um, well, how much knowledge do you expect of somebody when they're baptized? And he, he, he said, oh, well, I, I wouldn't baptize anybody. And I said, why not? He said, well, because it's such a big responsibility. He said, I wouldn't want that on my, my head at all. Um, he said, I, I don't know. They would have to know an awful lot for me to be willing to take the chance of baptizing them. Because if they didn't know enough and I baptized them, uh, then, well, you know, I'd sort of be in trouble with the Lord. So I'm sorry, but this is years ago, this brother. I'm not sure he's still alive. But um, the point is, <clears throat> to me, that is the attitude that, that is fearful all the time. Fearful of putting a foot wrong. And sadly, very often... That fearing of the Lord as a hard and austere man arises from fearing the criticism of the Christian community, the ecclesia, the church in, in which we've grown up and in, to which we belong. And this fear, this endless nervousness that, well, if we do that, it could imply this. This is um, it's so tragic because this is what stymies action. Okay, you make a mistake. Well, that's like the guy who made a ten pounds out of his one pound. Did he lose a deal now and again? Did he take two steps backward? Sure he did. And you will not get anywhere unless you're going to make mistakes. I mean, this whole Pentecostal idea of victory after victory, I mean, this is nonsense. This is not the pattern that's followed by any of God's servants of whom we read in the Scriptures. It's not the pattern of any of God's servants today. We inevitably will uh, make mistakes in how we execute the Lord's work from you know, genuine motives, from genuine lack of knowledge, lack of wisdom, lack of experience, naivety, whatever it might be. But so be it. Just so be it. We are here to do God's work to the best of our ability. Now, the question arises, why, why did the... Uh, the Lord bother saying to this guy well if you had done this that and the other then you could have been in my kingdom why not you know if the guy's not going to be there why not just say look sorry you know over and out you're not you didn't make it and that's it why bother explaining to someone who's not going to be in the kingdom of God what they could have done to be there well one reason is I think that um, the day of judgment is uh, for our benefit and we will learn not only from our own experience of the judgment but from watching and listening to other people and seeing their judgment 
that this man's condemnation will teach us, or would teach us a, a huge amount. And that's why he's told what he could have done. But also, there is a punishment for the wicked. And it's not eternal fire and all that kind of stuff. But we know that they will be punished and that they will go and weep and gnash their teeth. And I think to be told, you know what, to have Jesus look at you eye to eye and say, you know what, if you had done this, that or the other, you could have been here. But you didn't. Or if you had been like this or whatever whatever it was, uh, you could have been here, but you didn't. So, you're not. Uh, to hear that and to see the truth and perceive the truth of it would be well, th- that is the beating with many stripes that is worse than any hellfire punishment that is worse than being beaten with uh, rods or whatever classically the rejected are supposed to be punished with so I think that this is in a sense figurative fire of punishment And let's not forget the future that we might miss. You know, knowing therefore, Paul says, the terror of the Lord, and he's talking about the day of judgment. He says, we thereby persuade men and women. So when this guy says, I think that you're a hard man, and that you reap what you did not sow, well, Jesus could have turned around and said, no, I am not a hard man, I'm the Lord of all grace, I did, by the way, die for your sins. And he could have said, you said I reap what I did not sow. Sorry, I gave a parable about the sower, where I said that I am the sower, and I sow the seed, and I only reap what has grown from my sowing. But Jesus isn't like that, is he? The way he answers criticism deals with uh, false allegations or whatever. He's he's more subtle. He's more kindly. He doesn't have to be so self-defensive as to say, no, that's not true. That's a misquote of what I said. No, no, if you look at this uh, verse, this chapter and verse, and if you look at that email and this whatever, whatever, you will see that. I did not say that. He doesn't do that. He says, verse 22, okay, out of your own mouth I will judge you. You knew that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. And I think you could really insert a question mark there. And you can also imagine the tone of voice in which the Lord said this, with great sadness. Um, He's saying, okay, if that's how you understood me, even though your understanding was wrong, okay, but why didn't you live, therefore, in an appropriate way relative to that knowledge? Now, I don't think that the Lord in that sense is saying, well, according to your knowledge of me, your idea about me, even if the knowledge is wrong, according to your image of me, even if your image of me is wrong, that's okay. Just live according to your image of me, even if it's wrong. I I don't, you know, I think you can just say, well, it doesn't really matter, therefore, just whatever your religion is, you've got to live within the bonds of uh, the the bounds and limits of uh, integrity within that knowledge. I don't think that's what he means. I think that he means that amongst his servants, amongst his servants, there may be wrong understandings of him, or, well, I say wrong understandings, I mean, uh, putting the emphasis in the wrong place, maybe. And he's saying, okay, if you thought that I was a hard man, and that I reaped what I didn't sow, and I was unreasonable and all that, okay, Okay, fine. But live 
according to that knowledge that you had. And don't just be lazy. Now there are people, who I'm sure will be in God's kingdom, amongst the servants of Jesus, who do, it seems to me, have a far too hard and austere view of the Lord. And I think it would be lovely on the day of judgment for us all to say to them, and for Jesus to say to them, it's all okay. It's all going to be all right. Forever and ever and ever. You don't have to fear God anymore in the way that you have done. Okay. But those people who have that harsh, hard, austere view of God may be transmitted to them by their maybe hard, austere father figures they had in their own childhood. Who knows? But whatever reason they have for that, okay. That doesn't necessarily put them out of the kingdom. But they, and we all, should live in a manner appropriate to our knowledge of the Lord. So, and the image, if you like, that that we have of him. So I think the Lord is saying here, okay, even if someone, uh, even if you had it wrong about me, okay, you thought I was a hard, unreasonable person that I reap where I did not sow. Okay, you know, he's saying to this guy, "You, you could still have been in my kingdom. That's fine. You could have been there. Even with that wrong understanding, that wrong image, that emphasis in the wrong place on my character. Okay, that's okay. I could have, could have put up with that. But uh, you didn't even live according to that understanding that you had of me. There was no integrity in this person. And so he says, so why didn't you put my money to the... Uh, into the bank so that I might have got it back with interest. Well, I suggested earlier that he could have been saying, look, you should at least have taken the gospel to the Gentiles. He may also simply have not had that in mind at all, but just because he was talking to Jewish people in a Jewish uh, milieu, he could have been saying, look, you know under the law you're not supposed to lend money on interest. That's really clear. But look, even if you had done that, even if you had done something which was far less than ideal, I would have still accepted that of you. I, I, I would have, it would have been a lower level, but I would have still accepted that from you. And it just shows the eagerness of the Lord Jesus to accept people. And we ought to have that as well. Rather than setting a standard set in stone and saying, look here, you either get up to this or you don't, and if you don't, you're out of here, you're not in fellowship and all the rest of it. This is not right. Because the Lord Jesus, quite clearly, is prepared to flex somewhat in order to accept people. And if you want an example of that, concrete example, look at yourself. Look at yourself. Because he's flexed his standards to give you a chance to get in there, as it were. The Lord then, having said this to this man, he says, okay, take away from him the pound, give it to him that has ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he has ten pounds. Now, who are those they that say this to him? It could be the, the people standing by listening to the parable. But I think it connects really with verse 24. He said unto them that stood by, and they say unto him, Lord, he has ten pounds. So it seems that those that stand by, language taken out of Zechariah, refer to the the angels 
who are going to be with the Lord actually uh, operating, uh, if you like, the, uh, the actual judgment process. So even they are going to query this kind of upward spiral, the extent of it, that something can be taken from one person and given to someone who's already got so much. But then Jesus comes out with this great paradox in verse 26. He says, because I, I tell you that unto everyone that has will be given. But from him that has not, even that which he has shall be taken away from him. Well, these people who don't have anything, how can even that which they have be taken away? There's a paradox. Well, do they have anything or don't they? He says, even that which he has shall be taken away from him. And yet he is the one who has not. He that's got nothing, even what he has, will be taken from him. Well, look, has he got nothing or has he got something? The point is, he did have something, didn't he? He had a pound. He had the gospel. But if that pound does not increase, it is as if you have got nothing. Now that, I think, is the punchline of the parable. You know how the parables often finish with a punchline. And this is now getting to the end of the parable. And that, I think, is the punchline regarding the servants. That if, if you have the pound of the gospel, but you do nothing with it, and it does not increase, it is as if you have nothing. Now, again, this is the Lord with his finger right on the pulse of how it is in so many communities today. That there are those who think that the bottom line is to hold on to our understanding of the truth, of the gospel. To hold the pound. And to just keep hold of it, that's all we're asked to do in this world. I mean, there's whole so-called fellowships who have it as a, almost a cardinal point that we do not preach the gospel because we are in the last days and our calling is not to preach the gospel but to hold on to it. I mean, I, I grew up with this. I, I hear this. And honestly, it frightens me silly because, I mean, the Lord is speaking to those people who say that. He's saying that if you've simply just got the pound of the gospel and you're holding on to it, but it's not doing anything, it's not... You're not trading with it. You're not going into all the world and, and spreading the gospel as he asked us to do just before he went away into the far country. Well, you actually have nothing. The very thing that you think is the most valuable, important thing to you in your life, actually you don't have it. You don't have the truth. Unless you are actually out there sharing it with other people and bringing forth Glory to God, fruit in the vineyard, profit from your trading, all these images that are used. So then this parable told now, getting on to 2,000 years ago, echoes with amazing relevance to our community and to your life and to my life today. So then we have been given that pound. This is to be our life, not our hobby, not some intellectual interest that we have. And we are to go out into this world, as the Lord 
commanded us. And he will be with us as we try to take his work forward. He's entrusted us with so much. And he will be with us in our endeavours until the end of the age. <laughs>